I see what I say. The Green Notebook, carried by military leaders around the world. Within those pages are sweat, tears, triumphs, and the hard-won lessons of life. Lessons worth sharing. Each week, the team dives into the notebooks of military leaders, business professionals, authors, athletes and coaches, and entertainers to share lessons and help you lead with the best version of yourself. Hey, it's Joe here, and every morning before I crack open a book or sit down to do some writing, the first thing I do is brew an amazing cup of Alpha Coffee. They make premium 100% Arabica coffee, and Alpha has some of my favorite blends. They have Dawn Patrol, which is a nice medium light breakfast blend. I also enjoy Charlie Don't Surf, which is a medium Kona blend. And I even get to take Alpha Coffee to work with me because they also make K-Cups. Not only do they have great coffee... They're a great veteran-owned business who has shipped over 20,000 bags of coffee to deploy troops. They also offer a 10% discount to members of the military and first responders. And Alpha Coffee has been an awesome company to partner with at From the Green Notebook. So taste the Alpha difference and purchase their coffee today at www.alpha.coffee or via Amazon Prime. Welcome back to the third season of the From the Green Notebook podcast. I'm your host, Joe Byerly, and I hope everyone had an amazing summer. I took a few months off from releasing episodes to focus on my personal life and my day job. And I also use that time to do interviews for this season, and I'm very excited about our guest. I've continued to seek out leaders both in and outside the military. So you're going to hear from a variety of people that range from a former special operations senior NCO to a rabbi out in California with a black belt in jiu-jitsu. You know, our goal at From the Green Notebook is to help you lead with the best version of yourself, and I think we're going to accomplish that goal in this season of the podcast. And just a reminder, if you like the episodes, if you love what you're hearing, please shoot over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to our episodes and give us five stars. This helps us gain visibility and the opportunity to help more people on their leadership journey. So let's dive into this week's episode. This week's guest is a perfect person to kick us off for season three. Kim Scott is the author of Just Work, Get Shit Done Fast and Fair, and Radical Candor, Be a Kick-Ass Boss Without Losing Your Humanity. I love her books because they're grounded in practice. She has decades of experience as a frontline leader. She led teams at AdSense, YouTube, and Google. And she's been an executive coach at Dropbox, Qualtrics, Twitter, and other tech companies. And she was also a member of the faculty at Apple University. And on top of all those things, she's also managed a pediatric clinic in Kosovo and started a diamond cutting factory in Moscow. So she has walked the walk. In this episode, we talk about how to create a work environment where people feel comfortable giving and receiving feedback. She has some great tips for not only giving negative feedback, but also for giving praise. We spend a lot of time in this episode focused on what it takes to build a performance culture where everyone wants to come to work, wants to contribute, and be part of a team that gets results. So again, I am really excited about this one. I love her books, and she was super easy to talk to, so much so that it was almost like I was getting a one-on-one coaching session in this episode. So without further ado, please welcome to the show, New York Times bestselling author, Kim Scott. Great to be here. Thanks so much for having me. 
I'm so excited to talk to you, Kim. You know, one of the things that as soon as I opened your first book, Radical Candor, that, that really struck me is a lot of authors today, I feel like don't have experience. They're, they're able to sit down and write these management books without having the real world experience. And you were the exact opposite. Like you had an entire career and then you decided to write. And so I could really relate to somebody who's going through the thick of it right now to what you wrote about. So that leads me kind of to my first question, which is, can you talk about how your experiences shaped you and, and how they led you to the ideas behind Radical Candor and Just Work? You know, it's it's funny. Early on in my career, I had started this software company and I came into work one day and about 10 people at the company had emailed me the same article about how people would rather, much rather have a boss who's a total asshole, but really competent than someone who's really incompetent, but really nice. And I'm like, gosh, are they sending me this because I'm incompetent or because I'm a, a jerk? <laughs> and surely those are my two choices, right? And it really got me to thinking. I think it was that experience that got me to thinking about how can I, uh, because I want, you know, I, I really care deeply about being a kind person. And I also really care deeply about getting stuff done and and being competent. And And for me, I think... That was the moment when I started thinking about how can I explain how this works to other people. So that was probably the, the origin story of, of Radical Candor. So to start there, the title itself, Radical Candor, I mean, what led you to that title, Radical? Right. Yeah. Uh, Radical Candor is really about caring personally at the same time that you challenge directly. And that doesn't really, that sounds more like motherhood and apple pie than radical candor. But it's so rare. Really great feedback, I think, is a rare thing. And that's sort of why I call it radical. It's it's very unusual that leaders know how to both show they care and challenge directly at the same time. I think actually the military is much better at teaching people how to do this than the civilian sector, to tell you the truth. Well, there's probably, you know, like just in my experience, there's probably two types of listeners for this, like from the military standpoint. There are the people who want to be liked by everybody who just struggle with this idea of giving feedback because they don't want to hurt right. somebody's feelings or create tension on the team. And then you have like the, just the total asshole who like, <laughs> who has no problems giving people feedback. Right. Matter of fact, they do it all the time. They it's like just that, yeah, yeah. Like they're like, this is great. But yeah. the problem is, is, is that feedback isn't received on the other end. And so that talks a little bit to the framework of the book, correct? Yeah, exactly. So if you think about caring personally and challenging directly at the same time, that's radical candor. When you challenge directly, but you forget about the care personally part, that's what I call in the book obnoxious aggression. And when you care personally, but you fail to challenge directly, that's the sort of what you call the wants everybody to like them kind of kind of person. That's what I call ruinous empathy. And of course, there's moments when we do need when we neither care nor challenge. And that's what I call in the book manipulative insincerity. And so it's really I think there are a couple of things that make radical candor radical that make it rare. In fact, by the way, one of the confusions about the book 
is that a lot of people just read the title and then they use the 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 phrase radical candor as an excuse to act like a jerk. They'll storm into a meeting and say, in the spirit of radical candor, and then proceed to act like a garden variety jerk. And that's not the spirit of radical candor. That is the spirit of obnoxious aggression. So I want to make that really clear. So you can call it compassionate candor if you're facing that problem. Yeah, like I've I've worked for bosses who were extremely competent who, again, they were the people who had no problems giving me feedback, but mm-hmm. I knew that like deep down, they didn't care about me at all. Yeah, And so yeah. it was just about me doing a job in that moment to support them and to support the mission. Whereas I also had bosses who I knew cared a lot about me just as a person. And when those people would sit me down to give me feedback, I found myself being much more receptive and yeah. almost like wanting to bend over backwards to to start changing my behaviors. Yeah, yeah. I co-founded a company called Just Work based on the second book with Trier Bryant, who's a, who's a Air Force veteran. And she says, you know, when you when you care about your people, your people take care of the mission. And I think that's a big part of what what both radical candor and just work are about. When you offer radical candor, people are much more motivated to support your mission. Whereas when you're sort of, when you don't care about them and you're just offering sort of obnoxiously aggressive feedback, it's it's demotivating actually. Oh, I know. I know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Cause again, like I said, very well. Yeah. Yeah. Like I've, that's perfect. And that's why like one of the things that, you know, we do in the military is for everything really that we have, like, you know, clearing a room, you know, maneuvering tanks on the battlefield, we have how-to manuals, we call them field manuals to do those things. Mm -hmm. And honestly, like when I read Radical Candor and Just Work too, but like Radical Candor, when it comes to giving people feedback, whether positive or negative, I feel like this is the field manual that we should all read because it encompasses all those things. You know, how to give praise, which is the next thing I want to talk about. I feel like a lot of times we fail to properly give praise, but you touch on that in the book. Yeah, I mean, radical candor, I think one of the, if I can offer some radical candor about radical candor, I think there's something about the way that I talk about it that leads people to think it's all about the boss giving the employee feedback. But it's much more about praise than it is about criticism. And feedback is usually sort of code for criticism. So what I call it in the book is guidance, and guidance is both praise and criticism. And there's a lot of research that shows you should give three times as much praise, five times as much praise, even seven times as much praise as criticism. The problem with that is that if you're trying to manage your conversations by some kind of ratio, you'll wind up giving praise that's not sincere, (laughs) and that doesn't help anyone. So I think some of the elements of really great praise are the same as those for really great criticism. You want to be humble. Like one of the worst kinds of praise is praise that comes off sounding patronizing, like something you'd say to a dog or a child, right? It should be helpful. The point of giving people praise is to show them what to do more of, right? It should really happen right away. You don't want to wait to offer praise. You want to offer it in the moment. And you want to offer praise in public, not to sort of pump up the person's ego, but because that scales, because then everybody knows 
is what good looks like. And everybody starts doing the same thing. You got to be careful, of course, that you're not putting the person in an awkward situation with their public. So there's always a counterside to every coin. There's no absolutes here. And you want to make sure that when you're offering praise, just as when you're offering criticism, you're not giving praise about someone's personality. Like, oh, you're a genius does not count as good praise. You want to offer sort of situation, behavior, impact, which is also useful for criticism, by the way. But you want to say, you know, in the meeting, when you presented both sides of the argument, you earned credibility or whatnot. It's a really great point, you know, like, because I think that gets lost on us a lot of times. Like, you know, yes, I want to show people that I'm very thankful for what they did, but it's to show everybody else how important that is. And that's not... It's not something new. It's it's really interesting. I was I just finished a book that was like over two thousand years old um, mm-hmm. by Xenophon, and he's talking about serving under Cyrus the Great in Persia. Mm-hmm. And when Cyrus was building up the empire, building his army, he saw a group of people training a commander training his army the way that he wanted the rest of the forces to train theirs. So he invited that commander and his leaders to his tent for dinner, which was a huge sign of respect. Yeah. And so what he found after that was that everybody started training like that. So that was like Cyrus's way of giving praise. So forgive me for, for geeking out a little bit. That's Kim. a perfect story. I love that. I'm going to steal that story. <laughs> Thanks. The other thing too, I'm just curious about one of the things that was like shown to me very early on in my career by a leader was I did something one time and I came back and there was a handwritten note on my desk that like was just on, you know, like company stationery. Uh, at the time it was a battalion, so it was battalion stationery. And it was just like, hey, I saw that you did this thing. I just wanted to say, you know, like this is why it was good and, and you know, best of luck to you. And it was just, it was out of nowhere. And I still have that note today. And that's a practice that I've tried to pick up as well. Like if somebody does something that I feel like is way beyond is, is taking that extra step to do a handwritten note. Like how, how does that factor into it? I think that is hugely important. One of the stories I tell in Radical Candor is about an executive at a big media company. And he said when he was retiring, he was kind of walking around saying goodbye to people. And he noticed that he was a writer of handwritten notes. And he noticed that notes he had written a decade previously were still like pinned up These notes mean a lot, and especially in this world where everything's a text or an email, there's something permanent and meaningful about a handwritten note that is awesome. And some people love doing that. I mean, you've got to sort of praise the way that feels authentic to you. But yeah, I think the the handwritten note is huge. And it's also something that people can show others. Yeah, there's a great commercial. It's a Gatorade commercial with Peyton Manning. And it was something his mom taught him early on in his life is to write a handwritten note to say thank you. And so this commercial is high school coaches, college coaches, people that he played against, notes that Peyton had sent him over the course of his entire life. Wow. Thanking them for either the competition, you know, what they trained or whatever. And it's just this awesome splicing together of people reading these notes. And that's something I, I watched one time and it just really had a huge impact on me. Yeah, no, it's really it's really moving. And I think more so now than it was even 20, 30 years ago to get a handwritten note from someone like that. Yeah. So I love giving positive feedback. I love giving praise. I'm in the group, Kim, that like I'm wrestling with how to give people negative feedback. 
And so really, this whole podcast is just an opportunity for me to get some free one-on-one coaching from you to talk about... (laughs) (laughs) To talk about what advice would you have for somebody who has to sit down with another person and tell them they're not really meeting the standard? Yeah. So I think the first thing to do is to take stock of the fact the reason you're reluctant to give this person feedback is because you're kind, you know, and you don't want to upset them and and you don't want to lose that kindness and you don't have to lose that kindness. I think the thing for me that has helped more than anything else is having a story about a time when I received some feedback that maybe stung a little bit in the moment, but stood me in good stead for the next 10 years, top of mind. And also a story about a time when I failed to deliver feedback and it had a really bad impact. And now I realize that actually telling the person about the thing and giving them an opportunity to grow and improve and succeed is the kind act. My silence is actually unkind. And often just remembering that can help me get over over the hump. I'll tell you, you want me to tell you the story about the time I failed to give feedback? I do. I do, please. And then you think of yours. You can tell your story after I tell mine. I will. I will. So I adjust, or you can tell your positive story. Why don't you tell your good story? I'll tell my bad story. Okay. Um, So I had just hired this guy. We'll call him Bob. And I liked Bob a lot. He was smart. He was charming. He was funny. He would do stuff like we were at a manager offsite. It's a tech company. And it it was a stressful period in the company's history. And for whatever reason, we wound up playing one of those endless get-to-know-you games that nobody really felt like they had time to be doing at that moment. And Bob was the guy who had the courage to raise his hand and to say, you know, I can tell everybody's stressed. I really want to get to know you all. I've got an idea. It'll be really fast. Whatever his idea was, if it was really fast, we were down with it. And he says, then he says, let's just go around the table and confess what candy our parents may used when potty training us. Really weird, but really fast. Even weirder, we all remembered. And then for the next 10 months, every time there's a tense moment in the meeting, Bob would whip out just the right piece of candy for the right person at the right moment. So wow. Bob was a little quirky, but, you know, he he was he was fun to be around. He was kind of like, I don't want to call a person a dog, but he was kind of like the beta dog. He was fun. Everybody loved Bob. One problem with Bob, he was doing terrible work, absolutely terrible work. And I couldn't understand what was going on because he had this incredible resume, this great history of accomplishments. I learned much later that the problem was that Bob was smoking pot in the bathroom three times a day, which maybe explained all that candy he always had. But I didn't know any of that at the time. All I knew was that Bob was handing stuff into me, shame in his eyes. And I would say to him something along the lines of, oh, Bob, this is a great start. You're so awesome. You're so smart. Maybe you can just make it a little better, which, of course, he never did. And this goes on for about 10 months, and eventually the inevitable happens. And I realize that if I don't fire Bob, I'm going to lose all my best performers because they're frustrated. Their deliverables are late because his deliverables are late. They're not able to do their best work because they're having to spend time fixing his mistakes. And so I sat down to have a conversation with Bob that I should have started, frankly, 10 months previously. And... When I finished telling him where things stood, he kind of pushed his chair back from the table and he said, why didn't you tell me? And as that question was going around in my head with no good answer, he said, why didn't anyone tell me? I thought you all cared about me. And now I realized 
that by not telling Bob, just trying to be nice, I'm firing him. Not so nice after all. So, and the mistakes that happen in the military have much bigger consequences than that. So, yeah, which is a great segue to my fault. I was working with somebody one time. It was very early on in my career. I was like 24, 25 years old. And yeah, like I was working on a small team. I wanted everybody to get along. I wanted people to like me. And this guy was continually pushing the bounds of like what was what was okay. And eventually we were in combat together. He pushed it a little bit too far. An event happened where he almost lost his life. Oh my like, gosh. He had to be medevaced out of there. You know, yeah. eventually he came back and he's okay. He's doing great now. But I always went back and was like, hey, if I would have held him accountable early on instead of trying to be his friend, because we were, even though we were separated by rank and responsibility, we were the same exact age. Yeah. And so, you know, that's one of the regrets I have like very early on in my career. Yeah, no, that is a powerful story. And when you're tempted not to give feedback, you think of that guy and, and then all of a sudden it helps you get over the over the hump. I think the other thing I want to say about the Bob story, I mean, it's it's probably worth double clicking a little bit on why I said, oh, you're so great, you know, maybe. You can. And I think part of it was that I truly liked Bob and I didn't want to hurt his feelings. And that was kind of the ruinous empathy part. But if I'm honest with myself, there was a more insidious thing going on. There was a little bit of manipulative insincerity in there because Bob was popular and Bob was also kind of sensitive. And I was afraid if I told him in no uncertain terms that his work wasn't nearly good enough, he might get upset. And then everybody would think I was a big you-know-what. And so the part of me that was concerned about my reputation as a leader was the manipulatively insincere part. And the part of me that was worried about Bob's feelings, that was the ruinous empathy part. And the two often kind of get a little commingled in there. Yeah, I, lo I love that. For me, it was, you know, the coming to the realization that I'm being selfish when I'm not telling somebody else because it has nothing to do with, you know, we'll, we'll use Bob's feelings since, since uh, <laughs> I don't want to talk about any of the people I worked with. But yeah, it's like, I don't want to hurt Bob's feelings. Yeah. And so that's my justification for not telling him when in reality, it's me. It's my discomfort with having the conversation. It's my concern with like being, you know, looked at as somebody who doesn't get it, who's not cool. And so I, I agree with you. Like, and I think that's the thing is we justified in our heads as we're doing it for the other person. But in reality, it's, it's all about us. Or it may be both. I mean, it, you know, both things can be true at the same time. But the point is, like, if you really do care about Bob, then you're going to tell him. And sort of keeping that top of mind will often help. At least it often helps me get over the, get over the hump. Hey, folks, it's Joe here, and I would like to thank our newest sponsor, my alma mater, the University of North Georgia, located in Dahlonega, Georgia, home of the Mountain Phaser Ranger School. If you are looking for an education, this is the place to go. They are a top-rated senior military college offering over 70 degrees, including critical languages, international affairs, strategic studies, and an award-winning cyber defense program. Their Corps of Cadets is an Army-only program with 24-7 leader development. They have consistently been ranked as our nation's number one Army ROTC program among senior military colleges, and this is the institution that I credit with preparing me to be an Army officer. So, if you want to learn more, go to their website at www.go.ung.edu 
forward slash army one and learn more about the University of North Georgia, the Military College of Georgia. Now back to the episode. So you talk about giving feedback to you know people who work for you. Mm-hmm. But a lot of times, you know, I, I'll sit, come into counseling sessions and I'll have a leader say, what can I do to be better? And I've even asked it myself to yeah. people. I, I've sat down with one-on-one counseling sessions and a lot of times I just get like a blank stare and it's like, you're, you're fine. Like, oh, you're fine. Like everything's fine. There's nothing wrong. There's nothing wrong. But like, could you talk about kind of the nuances of that particular type of conversation? Yeah, I mean, radical candor, there's definitely an order of operations to it. And the first thing to do is always to solicit feedback. So the question is, and when I say solicit feedback, what I really mean is solicit criticism, because you're not fishing for compliments in these conversations. So how can you solicit feedback? I think the first thing to do is to choose, you want to make it part of your routine, but you also want to choose your moment. So Whenever I have a one-on-one with someone, I try to save five minutes at the end to solicit feedback. So it's just baked in. It's part of this thing I do. The other moment in time that is really useful is when someone else is really mad at me. People are much more likely to tell you what they really think when they're mad. But if you're like me, like my instinct is to avoid someone who's mad at me. So I try to override that instinct and go talk to them when they're mad. I'll always learn something. As long as I myself am not too mad. So there's four things to do in these conversations, whether it's, you know, in your one-on-one or when the other person is mad. First of all, come up with your go-to question. If you say, do you have any feedback for me? You're wasting your breath because I can already tell you the answer. Oh, no, everything's fine. You know, nobody wants to give you feedback. So there's three parts to a good question. The first part is that it's got to sound authentic to you. So the question that I like to ask is, what could I do or stop doing that would make it easier to work with me? But I was coaching Krista Quarles when she was the CEO of OpenTable, and she said, I could never imagine those words coming out of my mouth. She said, the question I like to ask is, tell me why I'm smoking crack. Okay, that's fine, too. Like, it's it's got to sound like, if you sound like Kim Scott, people won't believe you really want to know the answer. So you got to sound like yourself. The second part of the question is that it can't, you got to ask it in a way that it can't be answered with a yes or a no. So in an earlier draft of Radical Candor, the question I used was, is there anything I could, and somebody pointed out, no, you can't ask, is there anything I could do? Because then the other person can say, oh, no, everything's fine. So you want to ask a question that demands an answer. And then the third thing is, you know, not only does it have to sound authentic to you, it also has to work for the other person. So if Crystal were managing someone who had a drug addiction problem, that obviously would be the wrong way to ask the question for her. So you got to make sure you're taking into account the needs of the other person. So that's your go-to question. Now, no matter how good your question is, it's going to be the other person doesn't want to answer it. You're like, you're putting them on the spot. So you've got to kind of embrace that discomfort. There's no question out there that's good enough to eliminate that discomfort. There's very few relationships out there that are strong enough to overcome that discomfort. People, even people who you know really well, do not want to give you feedback. Simplest thing I know here is just to close your mouth and count to six. Only made it to three, and I can tell you're about to say something, right? Almost nobody can endure (laughs) 
seconds of silence, right? So if you can manage to keep your mouth shut for six seconds, the other person's probably going to say something. So now you've dragged this poor soul out on a conversational limb that they never wanted to go on. It's crucial that you now listen with the intent to understand, not to respond. Because even though you just asked for feedback, when you actually get it, you'll probably feel defensive. And that doesn't mean you're a lesser mortal or that you're shut down to feedback. It just means you're human. But you've got to manage your humanity. You've got to manage your tendency to feel defensive and figure out how you're going to listen with the intent to understand. So ask a follow-up question. My daughter, for example, asked me the other, she said it, she didn't ask me, she told me at breakfast. She said, she looked at me and she said, mom, I wish you weren't the radical candor lady. And immediately this huge wave of parental guilt. And I thought, oh, I'm traveling too much. I'm, I'm not with her enough. But then I thought, well, I should make sure I understand what she's trying to say to me. I should make sure I understand the feedback. I shouldn't just assume. And so I said, well, who do you wish I were? And she said, I wish you were the lady who minded her own business. So it was a very different kind of feedback than at first I thought. So make sure you ask some follow-up questions that you really understand the feedback. And then last but not least, you've got to reward the candor. And so if you agree with the feedback, that's pretty straightforward. You fix the problem that's been brought to your attention, and then you ask the person, did I go far enough? Did I overcorrect? You make sure that you that you fixed it to their satisfaction. Sometimes, though, of course, you're going to disagree with the feedback. When you disagree with the feedback, that's okay. Like, you don't have to pretend. If all you do is say, thank you for the feedback, the person is going to hear, you know, F you. So that's not what you want to say. You, you, wanna, you want to figure out a way to have a conversation with a problem that explains why you disagree, but you also want to make sure that you... First, look at what they said and look for that 5 or 10% of whatever it is they said that you can agree with just so that you're demonstrating you're not shut down to feedback. That's some really great advice. I'm also now not going to turn my video on for any more interviews. <laughs> so, <laughs> so you won't watch my body language while it's you're good. talking. It's, it's a more fun conversation. <laughs> you know, you totally, yeah, you totally called me on it. It just weirded me out. I didn't know what to do with my hands. <laughs> When there was uh, when there was silence, so you know we talked about giving praise, we talked about giving feedback, but really, like to me, like the heart of it is just caring deeply, yeah, um, at work, just caring for the people and getting to know the people around me. And so, one of the things that I think a lot of leaders struggle with is like, well, I have to give people like a purpose, you know, for their jobs or whatever, regardless of what their job is. But that's not really our job as leaders. Like it depends on the situation, but we shouldn't be providing every single member of our organization with their own individual purpose, correct? I mean, I think that leaders overstep when they think I'm providing purpose. Everybody on the planet has their own purpose. And every individual has a different set of things that are important to them. And I think you really risk overstepping as a leader, telling people what their purpose is. Rather, what you want to do is you want to understand what people's purpose, how they understand their purpose, what motivates them at work. In fact, some of the best advice I ever got for how to do this came from Russ Laraway, a Marine. I love working with ex-military people. And Russ was working with me. He was on my team at Google. And he came to me and he said, 
I want to fly all my managers from all over the world. So it's, you know, a couple hundred people from all over the world. And I want to teach them how to have get to know you conversations. And I'm ashamed to say I at first just completely poo pooed this idea. I was like, come on, Ross, like this is ridiculous. It's a lot of money to teach people something they they ought to already know how to do. Or if they don't know, you can't teach. And Ross really taught me how important it is to teach leaders how to get to know people and how to get to know people without overstepping the bounds of people's personal privacy and to remind people that this is actually a core part of their jobs is getting to know people at a very human level and that this can be taught. And it it was really interesting. So the career conversations, it started with the get to know you conversation and then you would talk about people's dreams of the future and then you would come up with a career action plan that would help them sort of take a step in the direction of their dreams. And this set of conversations that Russ taught all of his leaders how to do had a bigger impact on his team's happiness to be at Google than anything else any other leader at Google ever did. It was, a, it was remarkable. Yeah. And for the military audience that listens to this podcast, you know, one of the things that I think it's so important to get to know the people who are working with us, who are working for us. But one of the mistakes I feel like we make is we assume that everybody is going to come into the military and do a 20 plus career when that, that may not be the case. Yeah. Like so, someone may be coming in just to either pay off college or just to get some experience or just, hey, I want to serve for a couple of years. I don't know what I want to do with my life, but I, I want to yeah. serve. And so I feel like immediately we start mirroring our own mm-hmm. careers on the people that we're counseling um, when we're sitting in the session. So for military listeners, I would say just be open and just listen and respect whatever dreams or goals the, the other person has without trying to put yours on theirs. Yeah, I think that is hugely, hugely important. One of the people on Russ's team, what she really wanted to do was own and operate a spirulina farm. Spirulina is a kind of high protein algae. And so what she was doing was selling double-click ad servers. So it seemed like there was a pretty gigantic gap between selling these ad servers and owning and operating a spirulina farm. And at first, Russ said he felt a little bit panicked, like how in the world was he going to create a career action plan for her? But he found that actually when they started talking, she felt one of the things she needed to learn was leadership skills, was management skills. And she was learning it. So all of a sudden, this job that had seemed irrelevant, the skills that she was developing were taking her a step in the direction of her dreams. And I think the other important thing about talking to people about what they want to do in the future is very few of us know, actually, as you say, what we want to do when we grow up. I mean, I still don't know when I'm 54. So I think it's really important to let people sort of have three or four or five different dreams. And then you get a sense about the range of of hopes people have for their futures. And uh, it helps you get to know them and it helps you get to know where they want to go. And you can wind up giving people assignments that are more meaningful to them. And when people's work has meaning for them, uh, not the meaning you're trying to impose upon them, but meaning for them, they do better work. Kim, I'm turning 40 next week, so I really was hoping you'd say that you had it figured out. (laughs) I did not. I I still don't. I'm still working it out. I am too. I am too. So I guess I have like one more thing on radical candor, and then I want to move on to 
your next book, which I feel like is like equally important. But one of the things that you say in there, and I love this, and I've thought about this a lot, is performance isn't a permanent label. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of people go through their careers in the military, they get these great performance evaluations, and it's almost like they start resting on their laurels, or like, this is who I am. But that's not the case, is it? No, it's not. No, it's not. And sometimes you're going to get a terrible performance. I mean, I failed kindergarten, you know, and I went on to do reasonably well academically. So you want to make sure that you're not putting people in boxes and you're not putting yourself in a box, but that you're sort of taking a look and and reassessing throughout your whole career what kind of growth trajectory you want to be on and always trying to improve your performance. I think A lot of organizations, I don't know if the military does this, but one of the things in corporate America that bugs me the most is they'll do this performance potential matrix and labeling people as either high or low potential. I mean, no, there's no such thing as a low potential human being. Every human being on the planet has real potential. And so the question is, how are you as their manager going to help them live up to their potential? We actually have it too. You have your Raider and then you have your senior raider, and your senior raider is the one who votes on your potential in wow. the military. Yeah. And so, yeah, so basically, like what your career is riding on is this person's hypothesis yeah. of, <laughs> yeah. of whether yeah. or not yeah. you're going to. And what's funny is like each stage of the military, it's a different skill set mm-hmm. um, that's required to be successful. So one may be direct leadership, one may be organizational leadership. And one may be, you know, just this strategic thinker. And the problem we have a lot of times is that the person who is really good at direct leadership, who had potential to be a senior leader, gets in these senior leader positions and they aren't able to think strategically. So that's yeah. that, that's like, since it's just you and I having a conversation, yeah. no one else is listening right now. <laughs> no, no, <That's> nobody. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it's, I mean, it's, it's a very widespread, I think, issue in, in terms of, a, I mean, one of the least popular things I ever did at Google, but I think it was important, was people kept asking me, like, are these performance ratings fair? And I said, we work really hard to make them fair. And I hope in the fullness of time, they will be fair. But in every given quarter, we make a lot of unfair ratings. Right? Like, we don't know. We're not, we're not perfect. We sometimes get this wrong. And people are like, ah, but my compensation. But the problem with these things is that they are all conducted by human beings who are imperfect. In fact, Daniel Kahneman has a really great new book out about this, about sort of the errors in judgment. And he talks a lot about performance reviews. And they're highly, they're necessary, but they're highly imperfect. I had a conversation with somebody who had gotten a terrible evaluation and I had to, like, I just reminded him like, it's not who you are as a person. And there's so yeah. many other factors that come into play for that, that, you know, all you can control is, is how you perform every day. And yeah. that's it. Like, yeah. like yeah. <laughs> as unfair as it is, but I mean, that's, it's kind of like life, you know, like, yeah. You only have a, a sm- very small sphere of influence and then everything else is up to, you know, other people and, and stuff like that. So I think that's a, that's a very important point you make, Kim. Awesome. It's very important to me. There was one academic researcher who was just sort of trying to test whether radical candor worked or not. And the way he tested it was he told people whether they were, what percentile they were in on a standardized test. And I'm like, that is not radical candor. <laughs> that is... 
Because if you get told you're in the bottom 10 percentile, you're not going to do better. Like that's going to hurt your performance going forward. Now, you know, if you're giving, if you're making decisions about people's, you know, promotion or whatever, you got to tell them when they're, but when you, when your assessment is that they're in the bottom 10 percentile, but that's not, that's performance management. That is not a radical candor conversation. Yeah. So, you know, just shifting gears a little bit, you know, we talked about giving feedback, we've talked about caring deeply, but another aspect of creating a work environment where everybody's able to work together and produce the best results is being in an inclusive yes. um, work environment. And I've got the fortune of, I've been worked in a place for the last couple of years where it's a very mixed environment. And so like, I love your book, Just Work. And, you know, just from what I've seen firsthand, like it's, it, again, it's a field manual for inclusivity. So could you talk about the, you also have a, you think in frameworks. Yes. Um, so, <laughs> so you also have a framework for this book. Could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. So what does it take to create the kind of environment in which everyone can just work in both sense of the words, in the justice sense of the word, but can we just get our work done sense of the word? And I think there's two things that are really important. One is respecting everyone's individuality. And the other thing is optimizing for collaboration. Now, I've worked with a lot of different leaders, and I've never met anyone who said, yeah, what I really want is kind of a 1984-style situation where everybody's marching in lockstep. You know, what I really want to be is Big Brother. Like, nobody really... I don't I hope. I mean, maybe there's a few people out there who want that, but but the vast majority of people don't. They they want to respect people's individuality. They don't want to demand some sort of conformity. And also, I think we can all agree like humanity's superpower is our ability to collaborate. There is nothing we as human beings cannot achieve when we work together. And yet so often our organizations begin to optimize for coercion, which kills people's ability to collaborate. What is it that gets in the way? What is it that drags us down on the collaboration dimension? And what is it that drags us towards demanding conformity and instead of respecting individuality? And I think there's, there's three core problems. And the three core problems are issues that we often conflate as though they're one issue. So let's tease them out. There's bias, there's prejudice, and there's bullying. So bias I'll define as not meaning it, you know, it's sort of unconscious bias. Prejudice is meaning it. It's actually a consciously held belief, usually reflecting some kind of stereotype about a group of people. And bullying is being mean, like meaning harm. And these are three very different problems. And we've got to address as leaders and also as upstanders, we got to address them differently. You just said the word upstanders. Could you talk about what's an upstander? Yeah. So an upstander is a bystander who intervenes. An upstander is, let's say, I'll give you an example. So a friend of mine, Aileen Lee, who started a company called Cowboy VC, she went into a meeting and she went in with her two partners who were men. And they sat down at a big, long conference table. And then people from the other side started filing in the room long conference table. The first guy came in and he sat across from the guy to Aileen's left. The next guy came in and sat across from the guy to his left. And then they filed on down the table, leaving Aileen kind of dangling at the end by herself. So already there's kind of a bias. And this happens all the time. The person, she was the only woman in the room. 
the only Asian American in the room and she's nobody wants to sit next to her, right? And Aileen had the expertise that was going to win her team the deal. And so she started talking, but when the other side had questions, they directed their questions at the two men, not at Aileen. And it happened once, it happened twice. And the third time it happened, Aileen's partner, business partner, was a good upstander. He stood up and he said, I think Aileen and I should switch seats. They did, and it changed the whole dynamic in the room because it became immediately clear to everybody what they were doing. It was unconscious bias that was going on. Nobody intended to shut out Aileen. They just were kind of automatically doing it. And he did that for two important reasons. One was that he cared about Aileen and he didn't like seeing her get ignored. But two is that he wanted to win the deal. And he knew that if the other side was going to ignore Aileen, that they wouldn't win the deal. And so that's an example of being a good upstander. I think in any one of these situations, we play one of four roles. And sometimes we play two or three of these roles at the same time. So sometimes we're the upstander. Other times we are the leader. And it becomes our job not just to intervene, but to try to prevent these things from harming our team's ability to collaborate and to respect one another. But the other two roles are what I call person harmed and person who caused harm. And this is what was hardest for me to come to grips with when I was writing this book, because I never wanted to see myself as a victim, but even less did I want to see myself as a perpetrator. (laughs) And yet I played both roles too often in my career. You talk in the book several times how you, you know, people were like, you're being a bully right now, yeah, um, Kim, and you, you kind of work through that. But like, you know, for, for, you know, military, we do, we have a lot of white males that are in leadership positions. Could you just talk for just a few minutes, kind of like what it's like if, you know, you're a minority in the room and people start making jokes around the room that not necessarily are about you, but are about your gender, about your race, just to kind of give people perspective of like what that feels like. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it doesn't feel good. I got to say. I mean, there are a bunch of issues with it. One is that, you know, when that happens, I sort of wonder, like, do they not notice that I'm in the room? Like one time I was working abroad and I was working with a bunch of men on this team. And at the holidays, they sent me, for lack of a better, I'll just describe it, a titty calendar. And I'm like, why are they, like, what what is going through their mind? Do they, like... (laughs) Do they not notice that I'm a woman? Are they trying to bully me here? You know, so like, is this unconscious bias? Is it prejudice? Is it bull? Like, it can be just sort of disorienting, I would say, when that kind of thing happens. And it's disrespectful. I mean, and it's definitely not going to help me do the best work of my life. I'll I'll never forget one time I was a member of this, um, I'll just say it was the Council on Foreign Relations. So this kind of hoity-toity group in New York City. And I was asking, I had to ask a question and and they had term members. So I was one of the young members of this. And and the people who were there were like George Soros and all these kinds of fancy people. And so I'm already feeling a little insecure. And I'm one of like, it's a room of 150 people and there's probably eight women in the room. And I knew I should ask a question, but at the time I had just sold my company. So I was not employed. And you had to stand up and say your name and your affiliation. And I I just couldn't imagine standing up and saying, I'm Kim and I'm unemployed. So I was trying to figure out what to say. 
And one of the guys stood up and said, I'm so-and-so and I'm unaffiliated. And I'm like, oh, okay, that's what you do. So I stood up and I said, I'm Kim Scott and I'm unaffiliated. And this guy in the back of the room shouts, unaffiliated or unattached, you know? And, you know, I would like to say, oh, it's just water off a duck's back. But honestly, it was all I could do in that moment not to cry, you know? And so now I managed to ask my question and sit down, but I I actually left the organization. I just quit. And it was a shame. I mean, that organization was going to great lengths to try to diversify and try to get more women. And it was a shame for me, too, because it was a great professional networking opportunity. But I was just like, I didn't want to go there anymore. Well, one of the things that I really appreciate that you do in the book is that you actually say, like, this is how you should go about, or this is your recommendation for how to handle this situation, whether you're a leader whether yeah. you're a bystander, whether you're the person like actually, you know, the victim of Armed, a, of a comment. Yeah. yeah. So could you like, you know, quickly, because I, I think it's like several pages in the book. Yeah. Can I say like just a couple tips for how you could not, maybe not that particular situation, but yeah. another situation where, you know, somebody is witness something and wants to go from being a bystander to upstander. Yeah. So here's what to say when you don't know what to say, which, which it like, at least for me, in most of those kind of situations was most of the time. So if you think what's happening is bias, an I statement is a great way to go about it. So an I statement kind of invites someone else in to understand things from your perspective. So I don't think you're going to take me seriously when you're calling me honey or whatever is an example of an I statement. Whereas if you think what's happening is prejudice, you want to use an it statement. For example, Chair Bryant, who I co-founded Just Work With, was in a meeting, a hiring meeting, and everyone who had interviewed all the candidates agreed that the best candidate for the job, for the role, and this was at a company known for hiring, you know, having very high hiring bar, was a black woman. And, and she had worn her hair out naturally in the interview process. And the hiring manager said, well, we can't move forward to offer with her, even though she was the best candidate. Why not? Well, we can't put her in front of the business with that hair. Now, Trier has three examples of an it statement she can use in that situation. You can appeal to the law, you can appeal to HR or policies, or you can appeal to common sense. So it is illegal not to hire someone because of their hair, which it is in at least 11 states in the U.S., It is an HR violation not to hire someone because of their hair, which it was at that company, or simply, it is ridiculous not to hire the most qualified candidate because of their hair. So that's an it statement in the case of prejudice. Whereas when it's bullying, where the the person doesn't have any belief, they're just trying to harm you in some way, a you statement is a better way to get through. Because if an it statement invites someone in to get a little closer, a you statement pushes them away. My daughter actually explained to me this when she was in third grade. She was getting bullied on the playground, and I was kind of encouraging her to use an I statement. I was like, why don't you tell this kid, I feel sad, when you blah, 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 blah. And she bangs her fist on the table, and she said, Mom, he's trying to make me feel sad. Why would I tell him he succeeded? And I thought, gosh, that's a really good point, you know? And so we realized, you know, you can't talk to me like that. Or if that feels like it might escalate the situation too much, what's going on for you here? Like some, sometimes when someone is acting like a bully, there's something happening in their life. And so, so that's another way to handle it. So that's sort of 
how you can go from being a bystander to being an upstander or, or some simple words to use when this stuff is directed at you. But of course, as leaders, we, we need to do more. We need to do more. Yeah. And again, for leaders out there, you know, I, I'm taking command next summer and, you know, Kim provides a playbook for how to handle all this. And going back to the very beginning of the podcast, it's not something that she sat in a cottage, you know, 5,000 <laughs> miles away from civilization, writing about and thinking about like, she's reflecting on her entire career and the stories that she's heard along the way. So it's, it's a very, just like uh, Radical Candor, it's a very practical book. And one thing that we do in the military, Kim, sometimes is we will go like 100 miles an hour. Like if we were at zero before, we'll just hit the pedal and go 100 miles an hour on something. But you actually talk about hero complex yeah. in the book as a warning, as a trap not to fall into. So could you talk a little bit about, as we close this down, you know, a warning for people as well? Yeah, I mean, I think it is awesome when people want to be upstanders. But I, I also think that it can be very dangerous because sometimes rather than thinking, you know, I'm standing up to this injustice, like I'm this hero standing up for this damsel in distress and nobody wants to play the role. I'm going to, I'm going to go out on a limb. I rarely say absolutes, but no woman out there wants to play the role of damsel in distress. <laughs> and so if you set yourself up as the knight in shining armor, then you're casting her into a role that she may not want to be in. And I have been guilty of this as well, of the, the sort of hero complex. There was one time, there was somebody on my team who's very frustrated by having been bullied by somebody on another team. And I was mad. And I called this poor guy up and just like chewed him out in a way that traumatized him. Like six years later, he wound up working, at, my husband and I both worked at Google. He wound up working with my husband. And when he found out that my husband was married to me, this guy was like, you're married to Kim Scott? Like, how could that be? What a terrible person. You seem like a nice guy. And so I think you want to make sure that you are not putting yourself in the center of this story, but that you're centering on creating an environment that focuses on everybody's respect for everybody, not setting yourself up as the hero. Well, thank you so much for that advice, Kim, and for like the last hour. Again, I was just using this podcast as uh, some personal coaching from you. <laughs> but um, I loved our conversation. You, uh, you give a great podcast, so thank you. Thanks, Kim. So if our listeners have not heard about you before and want to learn more? Where can they find you? Where can they follow you? Sure. So I'm at Kimball Scott on Twitter and www.justworktogether.com is all about just work and radicalcandor.com is all about radical candor. And you can find one from the other. We're friendly, two, <laughs> two friendly cousin organizations. Thank you so much for your time today, Kim. This was awesome. Thank you. I really love the conversation. Thank you again for listening to another episode of From the Green Notebook Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please give us five stars wherever you listen to podcasts. It helps us gain visibility and the opportunity to help more people on their leadership journey. 
Also, make sure you check out our website at www.fromthegreennotebook.com. There, you can listen to past episodes, read leadership articles written by military leaders from around the world. You can sign up for our monthly reading list email where you can learn about new books that are coming out. And our Sunday Reflection email that comes out every Sunday morning is really short. It's a two-minute read, but I guarantee you it's going to start your week off on the right foot. Finally, make sure you follow us on Twitter at FTGN Notebook, and you can find us on Instagram and Facebook by searching for From the Green Notebook. Again, thank you so much for coming on this journey with us. I am humbled by the opportunity to learn these lessons alongside you. So please join us next week for another episode of From the Green Notebook, where we're going to help you lead with the best version of yourself. I came from the mud, desert on my hands, strong like a tree, there's roots where I stand, oh I've been running from the law, hope they won't shoot me down soon.